Welcome to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm the host of the Campus Preacher Podcast, Keith Darrell. This is episode two, Evangelism, Hellfire and Primstone Preaching, and Throwing Shade at John MacArthur. That's the all-saved freak band bringing us in with The Sower, and I want to thank them for allowing me to use their music. Their website is allsafefreakband.com. Feel free to check out their music. Uh, Welcome to the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And in this episode, the way we're going to seek to do that is, uh, first of all, lay out what it means, uh, what the gospel means, what it means to be a gospeler. And we're not going to spend tons of time in the Bible on that. What we're going to look to do is understand that in in the context of the first century. And so when the uh, Gospels and Jesus comes preaching the Gospel, those things are written, what people be hearing. In our context, we have a tendency, um, when we use it, say, in a secular sense, we kind of have religious connotations. And in the first century, I would say that they had uh, secular connotations as they picked it up into religious. And also, even as I I, I make that secular and religious dichotomy, I think that's a little bit uh, late to the scene, but that's that's one of the things we're going to look at is what is the context that gospel and gospeling is being used around the time of the first century, uh, even a little bit in the Old Testament. And the other thing we're going to seek to do is answer um, a listener's question regarding who made God, and try to answer that on a street level. But before we get to that, I want to, uh, I received a message last week from a guy who listened to the first podcast, and he said, were you throwing shade at John MacArthur? And I more or less was, because I listened to John MacArthur last year on an interview with Ben Shapiro on Sunday Conversation, and I don't know if you've ever, uh, if you've listened to that or haven't, I think it's worth a listen, and uh, I haven't really listened to MacArthur in years. I've appreciated aspects of what he did, I appreciate his firm stands on a myriad of places, but in the uh, late 90s, I got into Reformed theology, and uh, his dispensationalism uh, just didn't really appeal to me, and the way he exposited the text didn't really appeal to me. And uh, so I haven't listened to him in a long time, and I turn on the Ben Shapiro program, and as I listened to him, I was like, man, there is so much that I disagree with this guy with, and this podcast isn't going to spend tons of time breaking down that whole thing. I'm going to create three YouTube videos uh, discussing John's hermeneutic John's Gospel and John's Kingdom Theology. Um, so look for those later this week on YouTube. But in, in this um, episode, what I want to do is look at um, this clip of John MacArthur where he kind of lays out to Ben Shapiro what Jesus came to do. And what you'll end up seeing, I believe, is that what he presents, what Jesus came to do, is actually pretty truncated. And if you accept it, you can see why an aspect of the gospel being solely or kind of being reduced down to a heaven and hell phenomena rather than a this worldly phenomena, you can see kind of why that happens if you listen to John on this clip. There were probably 70 million slaves in the Roman Empire during the life of Jesus. <coughs> Jesus never tried to abolish slavery. If Jesus came to abolish slavery, he failed. If the Apostle Paul came to abolish slavery, he failed. If the rest of the Apostles' agenda was to change the culture, knock off Caesar, and wipe out slavery, they failed. If that's true, then Jesus went to the cross and said, it is finished, but it wasn't. He didn't pull it off. But if he came to prevent us from going to hell forever by burying our sins in his body on the cross, then he did accomplish his mission. That was his mission not to restructure the social order of society. Now, for many of us, when we hear that, we think that 
sounds basically right. Uh, Jesus did not come to overturn the social structures and that sort of stuff. Um, so to try to be as brief as possible, John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. And what that basically means is that in Matthew 1 through 12, uh, John has an idea that Jesus and John the Baptist came to establish the kingdom of God. And as Jesus was rejected by the Jews, uh, a new mystery of the kingdom that was never revealed before in the Old Testament came about. So in Matthew chapter 13, when it speaks about the, the mystery of the kingdom, John believes that this is a brand new revelation that has never been revealed before. So the age that you and I currently live in, which is the mysterious age of the kingdom, um, was never prophesied about in the Old Testament. So there was a sense in which Jesus came to establish a literal physical rule and reign in Jerusalem. The Jews rejected that. So now we are in a mediated reign, so to speak, of the church and evangelism. And during this age, we're not looking to overturn any social orders, as he laid out there, but we're largely preaching a gospel uh, towards the uh, end of time or kind of beyond history. I don't know the best way to put it, but uh, kind of beyond history where we are really discussing heaven and hell. So if you accept that basic premise, you can see why much of your evangelism would be very centered upon heaven, hell ideas. Whereas I think a kingdom-centered evangelism is going to focus onto all areas of life. And so I don't want to get rid of the idea of preaching hell and preaching judgment. What I want to do is actually make it more robust. And so if you were to turn to Colossians and you were to look at Colossians, we'll start in verse 13. This is Paul's thinking. Um, God for his work in the Colossians, and he uh, tells the Colossians that he did this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then speaking about Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue to faith, sta uh, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. So, so the basic idea of this in Colossians, so in Colossians 2.6, the Apostle Paul says, um, just as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in him. And so the first uh, chapter of Colossians deals with what this means that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think that if you were to sit down and you were to spend more time in Colossians 1, especially 15 plus, you would see that the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is not primarily an internal thing taking place in my heart. Um, that Jesus Christ as a creator and sustainer of all things is Lord of all creation. And the reason this is important is that in, in many areas, uh, when it comes to our apologetic, when it comes to our evangelism, we have to realize that the backdrop of even creation itself and Jesus being the creator and sustainer of the universe, as Colossians 1 tells us, uh, we need a rich creation theology, not just to be in opposition to Darwinism, uh, but actually to understand what it means to be a human being, to actually understand what it means to be an image bearer of God, to take dominion of the earth. And I, I realize John's a dispensationalist, and so I'm not deconstructing all of dispensationalism in this podcast, but we need to, but 
I at least want to put the trajectory in that the work of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his coming was not solely to save us from hell, but it was, as we see here in Colossians 1, to reorder not just social structures, but the entire cosmos. So I do believe that things like the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is a direct work of Jesus' current lordship, that the destruction of the Roman Empire uh, four centuries later was a work of Jesus' lordship, and that even now that we look at things like Islam, and we look at the rise of transgenderism in America, we look at communism in China, and we look at the secularism in Europe, uh, that all these things will be put down under Jesus' feet. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, quoting Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so as Christians, we look forward to the resurrection of the body. But as we go out and we evangelize, we are looking to bring that resurrection power with us, um, not merely in atonement theology. And even if you read the book of Acts, they will say things like um, that times of refreshing may come to you. So we look forward to uh, big things in the gospel. So going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 that Paul quotes in Galatians 3 that Abraham had the gospel preached to him that all nations will be blessed in him. Do you think when Abraham heard that, that all nations will be blessed in him, that it was a reduction down to being saved from hell? I think it would have been a much bigger vision of what that looked like. I think it would have looked at what Adam was supposed to do and I think what the church is doing through Christ. And so that's kind of a little bit of the backdrop where I want to take issue with MacArthur where I threw a little bit of shade at him because I think uh, that dispensational theology gets us into uh, a type of hellfire and brimstone preaching that is deficient in gospels. And so when things like the social justice warriors arise in Christendom, I think part of it is a reaction of realizing that there are passages in Scripture that seem very this-worldly, uh, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And there are many Christians, because of John MacArthur's hermeneutic, that treats this age as being something radically distinct and separate uh, from what's going on from those passages, um, that there is uh, some you know, discontinuity between the two groups. And I think that the way forward is actually a complete gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. He's recon reconciling all things to himself things on heaven and things on earth. And so it's in that context of uh, John MacArthur's gospel and the American gospel that's largely governed by dispensationalism that I want to look at the Old Testament backdrop or the, and even the times of Jesus a little bit of what gospel and gospeler means. Um, first of all, 1 Samuel chapter 4. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's a story of the Philistines capturing uh, the ark. It's a story that some of us may be familiar of because of the story of the birth of Ichabod, the glory of God has departed, uh, the, the mother gives way and the baby's born, Ichabod. And one of the ways I've kind of always remembered the story is uh, Leonard Ravenhill was a preacher. I used to listen to a handful. I don't know if the story's uh, true or not, but I was told that one time he was at a uh, kind of like a Christian festival type event, and he kind of thought that uh, the people there were being idolatrous. So when it was his turn to preach, he just kind of came out and rebuked everybody with Ichabod, Ichabod, and the glory has departed. So in this instance, uh, the glory of Israel had departed. It was captured uh, by the Philistines. And there's a man who comes back, starting in uh, verse 12. It says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with his dirt on his head. If you jump down to verse 17, he says, He who brought the news or the gospel uh, answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. So in this instance, a uh, gospel is the man who came running back from the uh, battle lines, and he was announcing, in this instance, uh, bad news. So in the context of Israel 
it can in fact be uh, bad news or good news. And another place where we uh, in Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, eighteen, if you look at uh, verse nineteen, it says, uh, "They then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said." Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of the enemies. And so Absalom's defeated. This man wants to go running back to David uh, with a gospel, with good news in this instance. And uh, you have actually two men in this context that uh, go running back. And so the, the point is when it comes to gospel in the context of the Old Testament, and next week we'll look at uh, its use in Isaiah to get a fuller understanding of how it's going to be used in the New Testament. But when it comes to us doing evangelism, when it comes to us being a gospeler, um, just in and of itself in the Old Testament, it could be uh, good news or it could be bad news. Um, but in the context of the gospels of the New Testament, which is uh, largely in the context of the Greco-Roman Empire, one of the things that we see is that the uh, gospel is actually uh, more momentous news, and it is uh, largely political news. Uh, famous examples of gospel uh, around the time of the birth of Jesus is uh, what's called the Prien inscription, and it's a letter from the proconsul Paulus Fabius Maximus. Uh, it's engraved on a stone in Prien, uh, which is in modern Turkey, and it says this, uh, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit mankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birth of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the euangelion, or the gospel, or good tidings, for the world that came by reason of him." And so in the uh, first century context, um, when Mark chapter 1 comes about in the context of the Roman Empire, and, and it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God coming, um, with the backdrop of this th sort of idea of ba basically a uh, Roman cult of Caesar, where he is the son of God, and his birth is the announcement of good tidings, it's in that context uh, that the early church began to pronounce, or pronounce, announce the glad tidings that Jesus Christ, not Caesar, is king. And so bring that up to modern times, what we need to grasp. When we go out into the public arena, and this kind of ties into the Hellfire Brimstone preaching, we're not, and it's not less than this, but we're not primarily going out saving individual souls and announcing how individual souls may be saved. It includes how individual souls are saved, but we are announcing how Jesus Christ currently rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father, and how all authority under heaven and earth has been given to him, and how all nations owe their allegiance to him. So in our context, rather than Caesar, we the people, the power of the people, democracy is a de facto savior. We go to war over democracy. Uh, we go to war trying to empower the people and those sorts of things. And uh, there's very little in many people's mind that can't be solved by democracy. And we as Christians need to step into the public arena and say democracy is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And the minute we make this gospel similar to what was going on in the first century, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord, there's going to be a conflict. If it's just about Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart, nobody cares. Um, and uh, the analogy I often use is uh, Donald Trump. Nobody cares if Donald Trump loses your heart. They do care that he's president of the United States. Uh, nobody cared uh, if um, Hillary Clinton uh, lives in people's hearts. They would have cared if she was pregnant, and so or pregnant if she was president. 
So the, the nature of the gospel, I think, in many ways, as our country divides a bit more, um, is more evident in political elections. And so for the Republicans, the election of Donald Trump, depending on where you're at as a Republican, uh, was seen as good news. Uh, for the Democrats, it was horrible news, and it would have been vice versa. Had Hillary gotten elected, for many people that would have been horrific news, but for many other people that would have been uh, good news. So there are political overtones uh, to what is going on there. So when we step into the public arena, we need uh, to recapture the idea that what we're announcing is something uh, monumental, and it's not merely monumental in the sense that uh, individual souls are saved, but it is a, a political statement. It is a theological statement. It is a uh, statement about cosmology. It is a statement about individuals. It's a statement about all things, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, and everybody owes their allegiance to him. And that's what we're calling people to, uh, be it kings, governors, um, rulers, and powers and principalities and all that sort of stuff, as well as individuals. Um, and so the minute you do that publicly, you're going to receive pushback uh, in a myriad of fronts. Some of it may be physical, others of it will be intellectual. And um, that's why, going all the way back to the first century, First Peter uh, 3 tells us that we must always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. And in turn, the atheist is uh, agnostic, the Muslim, the Hindu, everybody else is, uh, I think we should push back and make them give us a reason for the hope that they have. But the minute we uh, say that there's a creator, uh, that Jesus is Lord, we're going to receive pushback. And one of the most common objections on a street level coming from the atheist is who made God. So we're going to attempt to at least set forth the parameters of answering that question. So if I'm preaching on campus and uh, in some way, shape, or form, I'm making my argument for the existence of God, and part of that appeal is in uh, some way, shape, or form that uh, the universe had a beginning, therefore there must be some sort of uh, beginner. Um, uh, or if the universe had a, uh, is the effect of a cause, um, there, you know, what was the original cause? And so the, the first thing I, we want to do when someone says, uh, you know, objects and says, well, if the universe had a beginning... Uh, who made the, the universe, and if we say God, then their next question is going to be, well, who made God? And um, the, our first response wants to be, what's your definition of God? Because the minute they play that, they're going to show their hand. They're either going to think that God is like you and me and a temporal being, or they're going to go ahead and say that he's eternal. If they say he's eternal, then obviously he doesn't uh, need a creator. Uh, nothing created him. He's uh, eternal. He always has been. On the flip side, if they want to say that he's a finite being, they're no longer uh, working with God and they're working with uh, somebody else. And one of the um, kind of famous philosophers that have delved into this, I'm going to try to keep this brief, but is Bertrand Russell. And even if you're just sitting at a computer, you can pull up Why I'm Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And in there, he has a, a section on first cause. And uh, it's kind of interesting to read because I think he's a little bit uh, sloppy in his philosophy. Um, I'm just going to read a a couple quick sections out of this, and regarding the first cause argument, he says this, it is maintained that everything we see in this world has a cause, and as you go back in the chain of causes further and further, you must come to a first cause, and to the first cause, you give the name God. That's how it's uh, the first cause or the cosmological argument is uh, commonly presented, um, and believe it or not, what kind of stopped Bertrand Russell from believing in a first cause argument was uh, um, reading John Stuart Mill's autobiography, and John Stuart Mill's father taught him that the answer to who made you is God uh, cannot be the proper answer because then it's reasonable to ask, well, who made God? And, uh, well, it's kind of a nonsensical question because it's one of two ways. Either 
God's eternal or is a temporal being? If he's a temporal being, then it's perfectly reasonable to ask who made him. But on the flip side, if he's an eternal being, it's not a sensible question. And the atheist has one of two options. They can either say that the universe is eternal, which be contrary to modern, modern cosmology, or they can say that the universe is temporal and just say that there is absolutely no reason uh, for why the universe exists. And if it's the first one, that the universe is eternal, then it's not too difficult for them to believe in eternal things and we have a point of contact. And what we would want to do at that point was to tease out why what we want to be the absolute and the eternal thing is personal rather than the impersonal. Um, that's kind of a, a further discussion. I would recommend reading John uh, Frame's The Aseity of God and Apologetics uh, to kind of brush at that sort of issue if you want to get uh, more in depth. Then on the flip side, though, we do have a point of contact with the atheist and the agnostic um, and modern cosmology in that we both believe that the universe had a beginning. And it's uh, completely reasonable to say, well, if the universe had a beginning, uh, what brought it about? Because if you think about the atheist perspective, there is zero uh, there's not even time and space when the universe came into being. There was zero potentiality. So how did all the uh, diversity and all the potentiality that is now here uh, come about? They'd have to say it's pure chance. And so we'd be arguing that it's pure chance. And even in this little section of uh, the first cause, you may have ever sometime have heard the expression that it's turtles all the way down. And so the infinite regress of a turtle on the top of a turtle on top of a turtle. And so it's turtles going all the way down. And the Christian perspective versus the atheist perspective is this. For the atheist, it's pure chance all the way down. For the Christian, John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, in the beginning was the Logos, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. It is Logos. It is rationality. It is reason. It is explanation all the way down. So back in the universe are one of two things. It's either pure chance for the atheist or it's pure rationality for the Christian. And from a rational standpoint, I think what is a far more rational explanation about the universe is that it's uh, rational and we are finite replications of the infinite God and therefore we are rational beings opposed to we are the chance reflection of a chance universe and our minds are the products of chance and all that sort of stuff. So who made God? No one. God is eternal. And your options are either uh, something comes from nothing, God's eternal, and he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, and what's back in the cosmos is an absolute person that is rational. Uh, so until next time, thank you for listening to the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any uh, questions, comments, demands, rebukes, or exhortations, you can reach us at Campus Evangel on Twitter. You can email me at keith at campuspreacher.com. Well, we hope to hear from you. If you have any questions uh, that you would like us to try to address, feel free to contact us. If we can develop this one further, again, feel free to contact us. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>